Hello, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. I'm your host, Sarah Buino. I am a psychotherapist, a business owner, a speaker, and... I don't know. I'm a bunch of shit. But anyway, I'm in Chicago and my practice is called Head Heart Therapy. And one of the big reasons that I do this podcast is because I want to have conversations with people about healing, about caring for self in a way that's really authentic and accessible to people. And one of the pieces of feedback I get really often is that it's relieving to hear a therapist talk about their own struggles and their own journeys rather than having this idea that therapists have all their shit together and and we somehow have all the knowledge to imbue to the wounded person who's across from us. And I, I just don't think that's the case. I think we are all in the struggle together. And so that's why I'm here. And I thank you for joining us today. If you like what you hear today, one of the biggest gifts that you can give to the podcast is to share with a friend. I'd really love for these conversations to spread around the world. So please, if you do like it, share with a friend. And if you like it so much that you just can't help but throw money at me, because <laughs> that happens all the time. It doesn't. I do have a Patreon page. So it's www.patreon.com slash wounded healer. And that's wounded H-E-A-L-R because I'm an Aquarius and I just can't do things the way that they're supposed to be done. So if you feel so inclined, we would love to get your support. So now on to today's amazing guest. Paula Williams is a graduate from the Art Institute of Chicago and believes that secrecy and judgment are what make shame thrive. And she created this amazing project called The Shame Booth to bring people's shame stories out into the open, meet them with empathy and banish shame for good. Paula's desire to help others evolved as the result of years of self-medicating with booze and pills and a history of mental health issues, which has led to Paula's recovery. This experience has radically shifted her perspective towards others who are suffering and full of shame and terrified to ask for help. Today, she is grateful to be in a position to give back. So Paula is an amazing, wonderful human, and I am so glad that I got to meet her, and I'm so glad that I get to share this conversation with you. So please enjoy my conversation with Paula Williams. Hi, Paula. I feel like we've already had an amazing conversation because of all the technical difficulties we're having, but finally, welcome to Conversations with a Wounded Healer. <laughs> Good God. Mercury retrograde never ends. It doesn't. Oof. Oh. Thank you, Sarah, for having me. It's an honor to talk with you and just be in conversation with people where it's easy. Yay. Oh, good. I hope it's easy. Usually it is. Mm -hmm. Unless something weird happens today, but I'm not going to put it past whatever energy is in the universe because there's some fucked up shit right now. <laughs> anyway, though, would you mind telling people who you are and what you do? And then we can tell them how we met, too. Yeah. So my name is Paula Williams. I currently live in Sausalito, California, and I am an artist and a social activist, social agitator, a woman who has retired from partying for the last eight years. <laughs> I'm currently clean and sober, and I created this really cool experiment. I'm kind of calling it an experiment because we're learning something new all the time, okay. but it's called Shame Booth, and it is a art installation, and it's a roving phone booth that mm -hmm. I created. I dragged this thing to events, places like Pride, women's marches, college campuses, 
currently we're in partnership with an amazing organization, She Recovers. Mm-hmm. That's how we met. Yes. I saw you in your underwear the first time we met. It was very special. Yeah. <laughs> so it's out there at the stage of my life. I don't give a fuck anymore right. what people think. I mean, I do, but I also feel like I've been hiding myself for so long. So created a, an art experiment, you know, to see what would happen if we provided a safe, beautiful, calm, inviting space for people to step inside and speak their shame mm-hmm. in a phone booth. And it just started out as a one-off event, a 5K road to recovery event out here in San Francisco to end shame and stigma around addiction. Mm-hmm. And then we got so much interest and people were so excited about this idea that we started to look at where else we can bring this thing. And so it's traveled around California and we have bigger plans to take it to other places. And thus far, we've collected over a thousand recordings mm. in the last two years of people speaking their shame. And so many people, you can hear it in their voice, feel mm. relief. They really do. Yeah. We kind of briefly chatted about like trying to get Brene's team on board with this because that's literally what she says is that that is the fourth component of shame resilience is to speak your shame. Yes. And Brene has been a huge influence on so many of us. But when mm-hmm. I first started reading her book, saw her TED talk, I was like, holy shit. Like, and she's from Texas. I'm from Texas. Mm. And I just loved her whole way about it. You know, she just kind of brings joy and relatability to something that is really scary. And that's kind of what I wanted to do creating this booth was to make it super cool as an artist. Like it's got a neon on it and people can see it from across, you know, a room and the way it's painted and the shame dames, which are our volunteers at events where these rad Dickies jumpsuits. Yeah. These red Dickies jumpsuits and these baseball caps and red Converse pennies. And we're like, we're the shame dames. And they're kind of docent. They're kind of there to mm. help people explain the project and kind of help people go through the experiment and the experience and be there for them with a hug or further kind of conversation afterwards. Mm-hmm. Then through that, we realized, oh my God, we've got all this content. We need to bring this to a wider audience. So I hooked up with an amazing producer who has a journalism background and also does some radio. She said, we need to create a podcast series. Yeah. Finished our 17th episode. Awesome. Started out as like this one-time thing. And all of a sudden now I'm like traveling, I'm touring. It's like I'm touring with the band. Yeah. You're still that rocker chick without the drugs, right? Yes, I am. And it's to help other people. Mm-hmm. That's all it is. I've seen the healing and felt the healing in my own life when I've been able to speak about my secrets and things that I was so ashamed of that I thought, I need to bring this to the people. Yeah. And that's what we're doing. So, yeah, I'd love to kind of rewind and get a little bit more about your journey in recovery, your healing from shame. Cause I think it's just so beautiful when people use the thing that could have destroyed them and turn it into something that they make a living out of. I think that's so fucking beautiful. So I know we probably don't want to give the the drunk a log, but <laughs> but part of the war story that led up to sobriety. Yeah. Growing up in a fucked up household with two mm-hmm. adults, my parents who were just dealing with their own shit, three kids. I'm the oldest of three. I have two younger sisters. Mm. And we were all kind of living in our own little isolated shame spiral, each Mm. of us. Funny too, thinking about childhood memories, because I'm doing some astrology work. I have this amazing coach who I work with 
And she actually really helped me bring Shane Booth to life. But, oh, wow. And we do a lot of coaching through astrology. And you guys, she's amazing. Her name is Retta Rowland. She's amazing. You need to introduce me so I can have her on here too. Oh, yeah. She's so cool. So even this morning, we started talking about family and my past Mm -hmm. and thinking about different periods of my life that I just don't remember. Mm -hmm. And I used to think that there was something wrong with me for not remembering. But now what I realize is that my mind and my brain is protecting me against some of those memories. Mm -hmm. I'm not ready yet to look at it. But what's coming up now is after being sober for eight years and doing this work with Shane Booth and hearing other people's stories, the memories are starting to come back. I bet. Because I'm ready to look at them. Yeah. Growing up in a completely chaotic family, I have a mother, she's still alive. There's a whole other story there, but she's Mm. got mental illness. She's hooked on the fucking opioid. My dad, who's an alcoholic, but he did die sober, eating disorder, and, you know, lots of eating disorder stuff in the family, suicide attempts, a lot of stuff. And I didn't really know how to deal with it as a kid. So, I mean, at first I started, it was television and then it was food. Mm-hmm. When I discovered alcohol and drugs, that's what I used because those things were so painful. I could not look at them. And mm. over the course of 30 years, I've been married to an amazing guy that I've been married to for almost 30 years. I have three beautiful, well-adjusted, strong, independent daughters. And I had everything you could ever want. And yet I was dying inside. Mm-hmm. That's when I realized, you know, I already knew I had a problem with alcohol, but I thought I didn't think my life was unmanageable. So mm-hmm. had a moment of clarity and I got sober and started being honest about what I was, my behavior. I started opening up to my shrink mm-hmm. and I started really uncovering a lot of the shit, the stuff I drank over and realizing I'm not broken. I'm not damaged. I have a disease and I made bad choices. And also mm-hmm. there were bad things that happened to me. Right. And then one of our daughters was really going through some mental health crisis, eating disorder. She mm-hmm. had the treatment and this is all within my first year of sobriety. And oh so, so grateful I got sober. Mm-hmm. So I was able to like pay attention to this kid who was really acting out and calling out for help. Yeah. I was able to prepare and work on my marriage. And then, you know, I was an artist. I went to the Art Institute of Chicago, which is a great school, but I never really did anything, mm. you know, my art. I'm very creative, but I never thought of a career. And then hearing about Brene and realizing, oh my God, I'm getting better just from sharing my secrets. Mm-hmm. And I'm that my experiences are benefiting others mm-hmm. when I share them. But these are in the rooms of recovery where everybody's talking the same language. People understand each other. It's like, but what about what's happening, you know, in my community and in a bigger way? How can I bring this type of healing and experience to a wider audience? So then the election. Boo. <laughs> I just feel like I'm just like crazy. So yeah. yeah, the election and I was super bummed. And in San Francisco, people were catatonic. Chicago is the same. Yeah. Just walking around like what just happened. Yep. All my friends were angry and everybody was angry. And I thought, I don't want to spend the next four years being pissed off. Mm-hmm. It's going to kill me and no one's going to want to be around me. I'm going to be a bitch on wheels. So I thought, how can I create something that's part of the solution that's beautiful and something that's positive that can cause and promote change in a mm-hmm. smaller way? 
And so that was another inspiration to start this. Thanks, Trump. <laughs> Thanks. Thanks. I admit, you know, everybody's saying, oh, we're more woke than we ever have. It's, it's so true. Like I yeah. am paying attention in a way I've never paid attention. Mm-hmm. I think all of us are. So, yes, thank yeah. you for waking us up. Yeah, that's what my therapist said. She was like, yeah, if he hadn't been elected, we would be patting ourselves on the back for having a black president and thinking that everything was fine. And it's clearly not. Anyway, so I have a question and it's around the word clean. So I know that that's a program thing, but I have such an aversion to the term clean when people say clean and sober because of shame. And I think the antithesis of clean is dirty. Right. And like if you are using and you get a dirty drop. Right. Like I'm such a a nerd about language and the language that I let my clients use that may or may not promote shame. So I'm I'm just curious your thoughts on that. Did I say clean and sober initially? Yeah. It's so weird. I just don't even think about that word. I just like, oh, I'm clean and sober. Right. Yeah. I'm actually kind of fucking dirty. I just went hiking and I'm (laughs) covered in dust. So I guess I'm not clean. You're dirty and sober. I like it. I guess clean. Does that mean like I don't have drugs in my system? I mean, yeah, that's not true because I take, right. you know, meds for depression. Mm-hmm, so. mm-hmm. Which some old timers would argue that that means that you're not even sober, which is just bullshit. It is bullshit. It's like, no, I'm clinically depressed. Right. And I need to take meds, which I took while I was drinking. And hello, they don't work. And I kept thinking, <laughs> right. oh, well, these aren't right meds. Right. You're not supposed to drink alcohol. Right. right. A depressant. Exactly. So now that I'm not drinking, hello, these meds are working and I'm a much nicer person. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I'm sober and I don't use drugs that are not prescribed to me by my psychiatrist. Right. right. So... Sometimes I have clients who come to me and they say, I don't want to identify as an alcoholic or addict because that makes me feel ashamed. And then I have some people that certainly say like, no, I really own that title of alcoholic or addict because it actually makes me feel like that brought me to where I need to be in my life. And I'm really proud of my life. And so I really own that. So I'm curious how you feel about the label alcoholic or addict. Look, I'm married to a marketing guy, a brand. He does brand (laughs) development and like advertising. It's total branding issue. I mean, it's so negative. And that's why people have, there's so much stigma around. They're like, I would never say I'm an addict. Well, the idea about being in recovery and I got involved with this organization. I first, I saw that movie, Anonymous People. Yes, yes. And that changed everything. So can I just stop and tell listeners, if you haven't heard of this movie, I think you can see it on Amazon right now. That's the last place that I watched it. But basically a guy is talking about So anonymity is one of the traditions of 12-step. And so you're supposed to not identify as being part of the program. And what he's saying in the documentary is essentially that that needed to happen at the time that AA was created, but that now it's actually doing us a disservice if we don't come forward about our issues and addictions. Mm -hmm. And it's also to protect a new person who comes in so they know that they're in a safe place. Right. But now it's like people are dying and I have absolutely no shame and stigma now about being out. And also I feel like I'm kind of a badass. I do too. A rebel, a badass to be like, you're with your purple hair. Like I'm (laughs) dragging this 400 pound phone booth, you know, around the place. (laughs) 
taking off my clothes. Yep. I'm still amazing women doing really cool stuff, but we're just not fucked up. And to say like, yeah, I used to be a drug addict. I used to be an alcoholic, but I don't do those things anymore. But I haven't lost my edge. I haven't lost right. my creativity and wild streak. Mm-hmm. I just don't destroy myself and the people I love anymore. Right. So I saw that movie and I was like, wow, this is so cool. So the whole idea of like being out, I'm like, yeah, I'm out. And I tell people and I mean, it took a little while because my kids were still younger and we lived in San Francisco and they went to a fancy private school. <laughs> so I'm picturing big little lies. Yeah, dude. To- like those women <laughs> were like, yeah. my daughter's a genius and she's <laughs> special care. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I think I knew a few moms like that. Mm-hmm. It was kind of like that. So it was small and everybody kept it pretty tight under wraps. And Mm. I also realized when my kid was struggling that I was hiding in the grocery store from other moms. I didn't want to have to explain why my daughter left school or Mm. what was going on within our family. And I realized that that was killing me. And my life was becoming smaller. I was being held Mm. hostage by shame. So I started talking about it. And Mm -hmm. I started talking about it with other moms. And then I came to find other moms, mostly moms, because we're the ones who raising these kids, (laughs) were struggling with their own kids. And so it became part of the work, too, was have real authentic conversations with people who I never felt like I could before. I had to put on a persona or a different Mm. person in order to move throughout this community of people. And then I was also actively drinking, you know, through most of that. So it was killing me. Yeah. I feel like I find a lot of, I mean, not even people with addiction issues, but there's a lot of suffering because of feeling like you have to play this role that is not you. Like, I don't know you very well. I just met you that one night, but I cannot imagine you being silenced in any way. So I, the only way I can imagine you like conforming is if you were fucked up. <laughs> Because you just seem mm-hmm. so unapologetically you. I've gotten a lot more comfortable with that. But, mm. you know, when I was a kid, we moved six times before mm. I was 12. So I had to always reinvent myself at yeah. every new school and figure out where do I fit in? Who are the cool kids? Who are the athletes? Who are the popular kids? Where do I fit in? And I never knew who I really was. So I was always morphing into what I thought you wanted me to be. Mm-hmm. And that wasn't right. So Mm -hmm. then I just became a total little shit. You know, I was a rebel. I got suspended a lot from school. I got sent home a lot because I didn't respect authority. I didn't respect teachers. I didn't respect rules. They did not apply to me. Mm -hmm. Also, now doing a lot of therapy, it's like I was angry. I was an angry little girl. Mm -hmm. What I had to do at that time was to build an armor around myself and my heart because I was so afraid to show who I really was. If I showed people that I was terrified and mm-hmm. that I was afraid and I lived in a chaotic household, like I'd be eaten alive. Right. And that's kind of this idea of where that shame comes from. It's like I build this armor, it's self-preservation. And I realized getting sober, I had to get rid of that armor because mm-hmm. I really wanted to connect in a deep, authentic way. We use that word so much authentic, but mm-hmm. I really want to connect with people in a really meaningful way. And I was starting to understand more about who I was and what I needed in my life. And I couldn't do that if I wasn't willing to show you my cards first. 
I had to kind of, oh, yeah. I'll show you mine. Mm-hmm. You show, you me, show yours. me yours. Yeah. Yeah. I know the word authenticity is thrown around a lot. And I, there's this book that I just started to read and I was listening to a podcast about it. The book is called Selfie. I can't remember the author's name, but he basically talks about the fact that there is no authentic self because the self it's changing all of the time. And I think that's part of the problem is like, so I might declare like I am X, Y, Z and that's my authentic self. But then a year and a half later, it might be a different authentic self. And maybe it is that these things are authentic in the moment, but we're judging them as not. And it's just the fear and shame piled on top of it that gets in the way of people getting to their own authentic selves. And so it's hard to relate to people in an authentic way if they haven't even touched their authentic self because they've got to do the work too. It Uh takes two to tango. Kind of like you said, I'll show you mine, you show me yours, and let's both go to therapy. (laughs) Yeah. Let's all go to therapy. I mean, I meet people who like don't go to therapy, never been to therapy, maybe been one time. I'm like, dude, are you kidding me? Right. It's part of my medicine. I have a whole team of people that just help me get through the fucking day. Me too. Give me your list of who all you use. You've got your astrologer, you've got your therapist. And then we have a marriage counselor. Awesome. Okay, this is a whole other thing around trauma. I see a straight guy for body work. Wow. Yeah, this is amazing healing because normally in the past, I would never see like for massage, it would be, I need a female. So I started seeing this guy and the healing that I get being touched by a straight white man without fear that I'm Mm. going to be raped, assaulted, or touched inappropriately is such deep work that I needed to work on. And I didn't even realize that I really needed to work on it, but I've been him for about six months and I was sexually abused as a little kid by some creepy neighbor mm-hmm. and then there was mm-hmm. a couple date rates in there mm-hmm. I mean I don't mean to make light but that's how I You're right. how I do humor is the highest defense <laughs> yeah so there were some date rapes and yeah. a lot of that so I could not have sex sober yeah and so being married and being intimate with my husband is still really really hard for me we're still working through it. But I think this is one part of it is doing this body work with this person that I've grown to trust. Yeah. So body worker and then I have a sponsor because mm-hmm. I'm in that program. And I got a gardener. He's great. He shows up on time. <laughs> <laughs> um, that is a different type of healing, but it's real. Yes. Horticulture therapy, I'm sure, is a thing. Yeah. And I I'll do yoga and, you know, I'll get my nails done sometimes and I have somebody do my hair and all that stuff. I used to feel really embarrassed or shameful about that. Why do I need all of these things? And part of it is like, well, it makes me feel pretty. It makes me feel good. It makes me feel healthy. And there is some vanity there. I'm getting older too, but I also, I didn't get sober to just like exist or to just get by. I got so So I can live a good full life. And in order to do that, I have to take care of myself, mind, body, spirit. So I got team Paula in the house who helped me do that. That's awesome. So are you a healer? You know, I was thinking about that when I was reviewing some of the questions. I started to think about that. And at first I thought, well, who am I? Who am I to say that I'm a healer? That Mm -hmm. just seems so arrogant. But then I thought there's been so many times that I've been able to sit with somebody who's in pain and listen to them Mm -hmm. and be in that space and that energy with them. And 
offer my own experience that is just a little bit of hope for that person to say like, oh, wow, I'm not alone in this. Somebody else has experienced this and maybe I'll get through it too. And so that's kind of where the healing starts. If mm-hmm. I just offer a little glimmer that there's a reason to get out of bed today and that I swear to fucking God, you might think you will not get through this pain. You will, because I was there yeah. and I got through it. So yeah, I guess I'm a healer. Yay. I love when people say yes to that question. What I think is cool is using our past yeah. shit, our trauma, our pain and suffering for good. That is the wounded healer. Yeah. Like my mom has let life just kick her. And when she was younger, she kept getting up and getting up and like getting back in it. And for so long, she's just so exhausted and such a victim and Mm. can't take any responsibility and Mm -hmm. just wants to numb out and not feel her feelings. And it breaks my heart. But I see how if I didn't have a mother like that and didn't have a childhood like that and didn't do the work to get sober and to help others, I wouldn't be able to help others. I wouldn't be able to turn shit into something positive. Absolutely. I got to tell you the story. So there's two moms that I know, I don't know well. And I found out last week, the mother of three daughters, she got diagnosed with breast cancer and Mm -hmm. had a year to live. She'd been battling it off and on, but we thought she was out of the woods, but she just passed away and tomorrow's her memorial. And then another mom who was high in finance, making money, same social kind of community, either lost her job or got laid off and tried to get sober in and out of the room. And then she jumped off the bridge last week. So I needed to hear this because I was feeling kind of sorry for myself last week and kind of down. And then I realized, holy shit, like here are these two moms, roughly the same age, in the same city with the same kind of socioeconomic advantages, both with diseases and one dying a beautiful, graceful death full of love and her family. And then this other woman who was in so much pain Mm -hmm. that she just had a horribly tragic end. So I just think about those two stories and like how lucky are we who made a choice to live a different way that no matter what life throws at us, that we can walk through it with grace and dignity and love. And I wonder, I guess part, so I love deconstructing things and figuring out like really what's at the root of everything. And I'm, as you're talking, I'm thinking about people who get to recovery and really get passionate about doing their work tend to be people who are, well, I don't want to say not afraid of shame, but at some point they get to look shame in the eye and go, sorry, motherfucker, I've got other shit to do. We got to move through this. And the folks who I see continue to struggle and go back in and out of the rooms, I feel like those folks are the ones who really struggle to look at the shame. What's so painful. Right. Why would you want to look at it? Right. Like it's awful. Right. Horrible. Why would you do that to yourself? Right. But when you see others around us that have walked through it, that's the thing. If we're silent Mm -hmm. and we don't cut it openly and share it with other people, we're not doing our job. We are not promoting hope. Right. The other piece of it, I think, is like life circumstances, because I was 
with a client yesterday who has a friend who just went to jail and we were talking about the difference between my client's experience of addiction and recovery and then this person and my client luckily had enough privilege that he was able to go to really good treatment and get paid while he was there because he had a good job that was willing to still support him. And then his friend is in a totally different position. So those are the questions that I kind of keep going back to my higher power with. Like, it's hard to make sense of why somebody gets that journey and some of us get more privileged journeys. Like, that's the thing that I still can't find an answer for. I always wanted to also make sure that I'm not telling people, well, all you have to do is deal with your shame and then everything will be fine. Like, la di da <laughs> Like, mm-hmm. it's that easy. <laughs> yeah, I mean, one of the things... Brene Brown says, I love just quoting her, <laughs> cannot heal the world of shame or in this country until we look at the shame of racism. Mm-hmm. And that's huge. And right. as a white woman of privilege, like yep. I can't even begin to understand the generational trauma and shame of African-American people in this country. I can't even right. begin, but that's a huge piece of it. Mm-hmm. But I, not like you, you're a therapist. I'm not a therapist. So like, I'm not a professional. So when I do this work and we ask people to speak their shame or share it, we're very clear, like we are not therapists. Mm -hmm. This is just an invitation Mm -hmm. to start the conversation. Right. And sometimes when people walk into that booth, they might say something that they've never even said to themselves. Like you need to say this to yourself first. Yes. The more you say it and the more other people will hear it and relate, the less that shame has on you, the less of a hold it has on you, and you mm-hmm. will begin to stop. Right. Yeah. Someone was asking me recently after a talk that I did about whether we 100% have to share our shame in order to be healed or whether we could just forgive ourselves. And I never want to say that anything is 100% true, but I do kind of feel like shame needs to be witnessed with compassion by both self and others. I feel like it wouldn't be shame if you were able to heal it on your own. That would be something else. I don't know. Because the way that shame functions, it makes you feel like you're the only one. It makes you feel like you're bad, like you're wrong. So it has this component of isolation to it that I feel like does require a witness. And at the same time, where I wish Brene would have gone further with the self-compassion work because... I'm a sufferer of chronic shame. And it's just, there's always this like not good enough, like running underneath me. And the only way that I've found healing is by practicing self-compassion. So because there's plenty of lovely, amazing, wonderful, supportive people in my life who can tell me, oh, you don't need to be ashamed about that. I've done that too, or X, Y, Z, but I still beat myself up if it's not okay with me. So that self-compassion piece is important too, but they're like peas in a pod, Yeah, I get what you're saying. I also feel it kind of goes to this idea as an addict, at least in my experiences, I was always searching outside myself Mm -hmm. for some fix because I couldn't look inside. I didn't want to see it was too painful. But at the same time, that pain and suffering and shame that lives inside me, so does this beautiful intuition. Right. And I think I lost sight of that goodness and that grace. And I think the idea to really love and forgive yourself. I think that's kind of the number one thing to do. How can you love someone else until you love yourself? Oh, yeah. Oh, oh, yeah. (laughs) Oh, that did sound a little Minnesota, huh? Oh, yeah. Oh, it did there. (laughs) Oh, 
Good on you. Oh, man. Well, on that note, tell people how to get in touch with you via Shame Booth. How do they become a part of this amazing art project? So great. So thank you for giving me that. So we have a cool website. We're kind of in the process of making some movie changes to it. We have a great creative director. So we're doing some cool changes to it. But you can go to shamebooth.org. And on that, it gives you a little bit of just a background story about the booth. Also, we rotate audio clips that we've captured from the booth. And one cool thing that we just started was a monthly newsletter, and we call it the 411. Hmm. So we asked if people would be interested to go down and subscribe to our monthly newsletter. You only get one. It's once a month. It's not any bullshit, <laughs> long-winded, self-proclaiming, like, yeah. None of that crap. It's awesome. visually beautiful and it will tell you who our latest guest is on our podcast and it'll tell you like what we're reading and what we're watching. It's fun. I like it. I get to kind of partner with Philip, our creative director, and I just love it as an artist, like seeing the ideas that I have in my mind actually come to fruition. It's super cool. So go there. The only social media I actively do is Instagram. Yay, so- my fave. And we will be touring with She Recovers Connections Tour. And then we will be in Miami for the 2020 She Recovers Conference, which will be about 500 women in Miami. It's going to be insane to attend that. Awesome. We're trying to find a place for the booth so that we could tell people, hey, go check out this event at the booth. So we're working with the city of Oakland and their Friday night art walk, looking for a gallery. We've got some stuff we're doing, but yeah, just check us out and let us know if you've got some ideas on how Shane Booth might be able to partner with you and in your community and how we can continue to eradicate shame and mm-hmm. give people the opportunity to really speak up. Awesome. Thank you for being you. Oh, I really like being me today. You know, there's some days oh, I'm like, yeah, but <laughs> today I'm like, I like you. Aww. All right. <laughs> I love it. I love it. And thank you for being here and sharing everything with the listeners. Oh, thank you, Sarah. Well, I hope, I hope our paths will cross again. And I, I appreciate the opportunity to speak with you and share what we're doing here at Shane Booth. And I hope we'll see you again. Me too. Well, thank you. Thanks so much for sticking around to listen to this conversation with Paula Williams. To find out more about Paula, you can go to our website at www.headhearttherapy.com slash podcast. And we'll have all of the goodies up there about her. And I think that's all I need to tell you. Yeah, that'll do. So thank you as always to our amazing editing team at the creative imposter studios thank you to liam o'donnell for the album art and to ben mueller for our theme music thanks again for tuning in until next time bye-bye